We're going to be in John chapter 13 in a moment, if you want to be turning there. I want to talk about criticism for a little bit. Uh, we, we know what that feels like. And um, criticism is difficult. It's, it's difficult to, to give criticism. It's difficult to receive criticism. We've been in those circumstances where we get criticized. And the thing about it is, like, we've done studies. We know what happens to our brains when we, when we get criticized. Like, our fear part lights up. And all the chemicals that indicate that we're under attack start to go off because we know what it's like to be criticized. We've tried to develop methods to do criticism well. You know the sandwich that you've taught, like say something nice and then say the thing you need to criticize and then say something nice again? Have you heard that? I think too often that devolves into conversations like this. You know, Bob, thank you for showing up uh, to work on time today. Bob, you're completely incompetent at your job. Uh, Bob, that's a nice tie you have on. Like we just, it gets formulaic. Like you can tell when someone's doing that to you, can't you? You know what, what they're trying to do and what they really mean and, and what they don't. You also know how hard it is to give criticism. You have been in those moments uh, where you have to say a hard word to someone. And all the anxiety beforehand, maybe they don't know you're about to have to say something hard to them. You know what it's like to go in those difficult conversations having to say a hard word to someone. And what it's like to be the criticizer. And I, I don't know sometimes which one I'd rather be. I think I'd rather be the person who hasn't messed up and needs criticism, but I, that's not always the case. Criticism is difficult. In today's text, we're going to talk about a conversation where Jesus has to, in, a, in some way, issue some criticism. And I want us to notice how Jesus interacts with a person he needs to criticize and say a hard word to. So, we're back in John 13 today. We were in 13 and 15 uh, last week in our classes talking about Jesus' conversations with his friends and the things that are going well. He invites his disciples in. He washes their feet and he models service for them. And then he begins to teach them about how important it will be for them to be connected with each other and connected with him. But all this is part of what most scholars will call a farewell discourse. And you can guess by that name what a farewell discourse probably is. It's the things that you say to people whom you're about to leave for one reason or another. Jacob has a farewell discourse with his family in Genesis. Moses has one with the nation of Israel at the end of Deuteronomy. There are books that are written after the Bible books. There are these apocryphal books that claim to be the testaments of other uh, mothers and fathers of the nation of Israel. The things you want to say to those closest to you when you're about to leave. That's what's going on in John chapter 13, really after the foot washing story. So while everything was good in many of the texts from last week, we're focusing on this part of John 13 this week where Jesus has to deal with two of his closest followers who in different ways are going to turn on him. And in your Bible classes, you may have talked about Judas and the conversation Jesus has with Judas, who is going to outright betray him. In, in our sermon, we're going to focus on the conversation Jesus has with Peter, who will betray him in a different way. So the conversation picks up in John chapter 13, verse 30, 
where we're told as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Now, this is a big change of scene. Things get very dark. In fact, the story here says it was night. And if you uh, listened to uh, Kurt Nickham's presentation was he, when he was here Wednesday night, if you want to listen to that later, it's online. But he talks about the symbolism between light and dark. And when darkness shows up, it's not just the time of day. John is trying to signal something for us. And things are going to get difficult from this point on. This is maybe a cheesy analogy, but I think of that moment in the movie Home Alone where Kevin is sitting there and he's praying over his macaroni and cheese dinner and the clock strikes nine and the music starts and we know the intensity has begun. That's kind of what's happening here. We've gone from this calm moment to now everything is set in motion and this night is going to take a very difficult turn as it progresses. So Judas leaves and now Jesus can have a conversation with those who are closest to him. The, the outright enemy has left. And now Jesus can get real with his followers. So he tells them, I'm going to be with you a little bit longer, but I am going somewhere you cannot go. And we pick up the conversation as Peter responds in verse 36. And he says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but... You will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And we all love Peter. We know the stories of Peter. We like Peter maybe because he's most like us. He's not an outright betrayer of Jesus like Judas was. He's a, a stumbling, bumbling follower who gets it wrong, but whose heart is in the right place. He's not perfect. He makes plenty of public mistakes. And so maybe we identify with him the most, and for good reason. But he, in this story, he does not understand what Jesus is saying, which is typical when Jesus is talking kind of mysteriously like this, a lot of people listening don't understand. So he doesn't understand where Jesus is going. He doesn't understand why he can't follow him. And Jesus says, well, you will follow me, but you're going to follow me later, not now. And Jesus isn't even asking him to understand all this right now. He doesn't go and explain it to them. You know how sometimes when Jesus is teaching and he'll say one thing and people don't understand it and he'll say, okay, let me say it to you in terms that make more sense. He doesn't do that here. He just says, I'm going somewhere that you can't follow, but you will follow me later. And then he goes on to predict that before the rooster crows, Peter will disown him three times. Now, for all we know about Peter, this might be a shock to us. We know that he makes mistakes, but they're usually mistakes that are moving toward Jesus. They're moving toward him in ways that are in faith, that, that are evidences of a kind of growing discipleship, not moving away from Jesus. Who would have predicted that, that Peter would deny Jesus three times? That's a turn of events in Peter's story, isn't it? Well, who would have predicted it? The shepherd who knows his sheep. 
The shepherd who knows that Peter's bumbling, often braggadocious statements often don't turn out to be true. He cannot, he cannot back them up. So Jesus knows Peter better than anyone around. He knows him better than we even do reading his story. And so Jesus predicts that Peter will deny him. Surely that was a shock to everyone in the room. What I really want to focus on is the, the actual conversation, the back and forth, and what Jesus says to Peter. Peter says, can I go with you? Jesus could have responded with a stinging, sarcastic answer. He could have responded the way I do sometimes when I'm at my worst or maybe at my normal. You'd have to ask my family. He could have said, oh sure, Peter, you can follow me. Let's, how about we talk about that time you tried to follow me into the water? How did that work out for you? Uh, hey, how about that time I was trying to teach you about bread and you still couldn't understand? How about all those times you talked big and didn't follow through? Sure, you can follow me, Peter. Let, let's do that and see how that works out. We all know what it's like to respond in that way. We're not proud of it, but we do it. And Jesus could have responded with stinging sarcasm and rebuked Peter. He could have gone at the worst parts of Peter. And he would have been telling the truth. He could have done that, but he didn't. Jesus says two important things to Peter that set up Peter's present and his future. He says to him, first, you will disown me three times. Then he says, you will follow me later. I couldn't stop thinking about the contrast of those two statements. One, a difficult reality, a rebuke, a criticism. One, a hope for the future. Last week I talked about a book I was reading. It had to do with community. But, there, but I, I read a statement in this book that I underlined, I starred, I folded the page over because it was the one statement in this book that stuck out to me because it spoke to me in a way that really caught my attention. This is the book called Made for People by Justin Whitmill Early. And he says this in the middle of the book when he's talking about friends and how we speak into each other's lives sometimes in hard ways. And his accountability he has, he says, naming a reality without naming any alternate, alternate future is not rebuke, but cruelty. And it made me think of my parenting. It made me think of how I speak to those whom I criticize. And how often we just level a stinging rebuke and don't give any hope for what could be. And what it's like to receive that kind of criticism that just seems hopeless. I wonder if you have felt that too. If you have received and given criticism like that. And so in my way of helping me remember things, I kind of boiled it down to this statement that, that's going to help guide my conversations. Naming a now without naming a next is cruel. When I only talk about what's happening now, when I only talk about the problem that exists in someone's life, when I only speak about their poor behavior, their poor choices, and don't point to something more hopeful, that's not helping them. That's not a biblical rebuke. That is just cruel. What would it look like then if we became people who could name the now but also could name the next, both in our lives and in others? This precedent shows up all the time in Scripture. 
The prophets do it. Isaiah 39, it's all about exile. You have sinned against the Lord. You have rebelled. Punishment is coming. You have messed up. Turn the page into Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people. The Lord is with you. Your sins have been paid for and you will see the glory of God. Name the now, but we've named the next. Or Paul's statement in Romans 8 where he says, I consider that our present sufferings, the now, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's the next. So many times in Scripture, we name the difficult reality, even the poor choices, the rebellion against God, but we name the next. What could be? What is the hopeful future? But so often we don't do that. We just do one or the other. So using Scripture as our guide and the model there, what would happen if we looked at a couple of different places in our lives and made sure that we, when we name a now, we also name a next? What would happen at home if we did this better? Many of us in our jobs, we have models for how to give critique. We, we have templates to do reviews, and we have files that we fill. We have HR departments that give us guidelines for how to level criticism at someone at work. I'm not saying we always do it well, but we have guidelines for that. But at home, all bets are off. We say some of the worst things to those we love the most. I mean, as I was working on this sermon, I was freshly convicted of my parenting style and how I talk to my kids when we need to issue a rebuke. I know how to do this. I've been trained how to do this in some parenting classes I've taken. I just don't often do it. But when I remember how to do it, I follow better practices. Practices like level your criticism at the behavior and not the person. When Jesus says to Peter, you are going to deny me, he doesn't say, you are a Christ denier. He says, you will do this action. And how often do I level my critique at a person? When you level your critique at their identity, how can you name a next? This is who they are. What would change? You're a liar versus you told a lie. You're a cheater versus you, you did something that was unfaithful. And you see the difference in those critiques? One is a behavior that could have a next that might be better. One is part of someone's identity. And how does that change? So I was convicted about how I issue criticism at home and how I could model that after how Jesus talks to Peter. That I could name the noun and be very clear about that. But I could also give a window to name a next for what could be better. Because this behavior can change for the better. I'm going to give some hope for that. But I think I know where your worst criticism comes from. Before we put anything on the screen, I have a guess. I'm going I'm, I'm to show you your worst critic. I want you to get your phone out real quick. I want you to turn on the camera. I want you to hit that little button that uses the, the front-facing camera. Are you looking at your worst critic right now? Sometimes the failure to name a next for ourselves 
comes from ourselves. We level the harshest criticism at ourselves. I can identify with that. I've taken all the personality tests and different ones will use, at their most generous, they will use a word for my type called the improver. That's good. Sometimes they just say perfectionist. But part of that comes with this little voice, this little inner critic in my head that's always telling me what could be better. So I just want to tell you ahead of time, when there are opportunities where you need to rebuke me, and I'm sure they will come, just know you won't outdo my own critic. It's there. I know what it's like to have that voice that says, you messed up, this doesn't get better, you're no good. I hear it, and you hear it too. What would it be like if we could learn to name the next with our own selves instead of beating ourselves up over and over again? I know you do it. We all do it. A few years ago, I came across a song by an artist I like named Andrew Peterson. And the context for this song, he, he's having a conversation, uh, well, why he wrote the song. He's in his uh, teenage daughter's room processing the day, and it's been bad, and friends have been mean and cruel, and no one likes her, and she doesn't look good enough. And we, we understand these conversations. We've had them. It breaks our heart. And he went and wrote a song that kind of all the things he really wants her to know. The song has a title that you might find cheesy. The ta- song's title is just Be Kind to Yourself. But I would challenge you to go listen to this song and see if you think it's cheesy. I, I don't. Uh, it really brought me to tears the first time I heard it. Because here's a dad talking to his daughter about what he wants her to know. Here are some of the lyrics of the song. I know it's hard to hear it when the anger in your spirit is pointed like an arrow at your chest. When the voices in your mind are anything but kind... And you can't believe your father knows best. Then in the bridge of the song, he paints a picture of what it's like when we feel like we're our own worst enemy. When we're the harshest to ourselves. And he says, how does it end when the war that you're in is just you against you against you? You've got to learn to love your enemies. You too. And I thought, boy, we all need to hear that quite often. Because most of us are hardest on ourselves. Even if we have a bunch of blustery bravado about others, we're hardest on ourselves. And what would it mean to hear the words of Jesus, who said to someone who was about to betray him, you will follow me later. Jesus does not give up on Peter. And if Jesus doesn't give up on Peter, if he doesn't level the harshest criticism at Peter, then I promise you he's not got this harsh criticism leveled at you. You might imagine it, but it's not there. It's not there. I'll leave you with this image. On the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem, there's a building called the Church of St. Peter. It sits where uh, archaeologists think maybe Caiaphas' palace used to be. Beautiful facilities, been there centuries. I don't know if you can see it, but if we zoom in, you're going to see the ornament, the weather vane on the top of this building. Do you see what it is? And that church building, for me, stands for the now and the next. It doesn't forget the sin of its namesake. It's there, it's at the top. We don't ignore the now, we don't downplay it, we don't act like it's no big deal. 
But it's a place where people have come to worship. It's a huge building. That rooster is minuscule compared to the building where people have gathered to worship. That's Peter's story. The guy to whom Jesus says, love one another, at the end of his, or at the end of his time with Jesus, tells Jesus three times, I love you, I love you, I love you. Peter's story. So if Peter does not give up, or if Jesus does not give up hope on Peter, I promise you he's not giving up hope on you. And don't let that inner critic tell you that you're hopeless. Don't let your inner critic only focus on the now, the mistakes you've made, the parts of you you think are a failure. Jesus doesn't do that when he criticizes Peter. He names the now, he names the next. So friends, with Peter and with all of us, there's not just the now. There's always the next. May we take great hope in that. Let's be standing as we sing.